Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor and a preacher speaking to you about a pastor and a preacher, trying to help you as I try to help myself to learn better how to preach the Christ that we love. The sermon we're looking at today is called A String of Pearls. It was delivered on a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day of the 28th of August, 1870, by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Each week, as you'll know if you're a regular listener, we work our way through the uh, sermons of Spurgeon, seven at a time, God helping us. This week it's 948 to 954, and our featured sermon, a representative sampling, is 948, the first of our sermons this week. Now, Spurgeon is a man who who loves Christ, who loves the salvation that Christ has accomplished, who loves the God who has accomplished salvation in Christ. He dives into these things over and over again. He, he is amazed by them. Grace never ceases to be amazing to him. And so in this sermon, he's in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. The text is this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Spurgeon says that these verses are like a New Testament psalm, and the psalm recounts with joyous gratitude the mercies which God has given us, It supplants distress by thankfulness, even as the fir tree and the myrtle take the place of the thorn and the briar, where the gospel works its wonders. These three verses provide us with a string of pearls, a necklace of diamonds, a cabinet of jewels, and says Spurgeon, those are poor comparisons, for we have something here far better than all the riches of the earth can ever typify. Here is the heritage of the chosen of God, your heritage, your own peculiar portion, if you belong to Christ this day. So Spurgeon is going to work his way through this text, and he wants us to see seven choice things, a perfect number of perfect things. One might see more than seven, he says, but these will exhaust all our time. Now, I don't think that's just hyperbole. You can uh, probably divide it up more, uh, but Spurgeon uh, appreciates those Uh, kind of coherences, uh, seven choice things, the perfect number of perfect things. And so he's under uh, some measure of constraint in this sermon because he has to cover these seven different elements. And that means he has to push along. He can't dawdle uh, and uh, he's trying to maintain his balance. A good reminder for us if we're preachers that when we put together our sermons, it's that the uh, the the homiletics, the, the the teaching principles that we need to be aware of how these divisions that we make and these headings that we introduce and the logic that we employ is meant to carry forward the sermon and needs to, we need to take account of what that's going to look like in practice. So then, he sees first in the text as the source of all the rest, abundant mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a lively hope. No other attribute could have helped us had mercy refused. As we are by nature, justice condemns us, holiness frowns upon us, power crushes us, truth confirms the threatening of the law, and wrath fulfills it. 
It is from the mercy of our God that all our hopes begin. So he asks us as fellow debtors to stand still a while and contemplate the abundant mercy of our blessed God. And it's good for us to do what Spurgeon tells us or encourages us, exhorts us to do, to stop and ponder upon the mercy of the Lord. And he gives us some pointers as to how we can do this. He wants us to concentrate on God's great mercy. Everything in God is on a grand scale. Great power, he shakes the world. Great wisdom, he balances the clouds. His mercy is commensurate with his other attributes. It is God-like mercy. It is as divine as anything else. It is infinite mercy. You must measure his Godhead before you shall compute his mercy. So the mercy of God. And then it's the, the mercy of God in Christ. For it is the mercy of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's mercy is always special, but his mercy in Christ especially so. How are we going to describe it? asks Spurgeon. And he doesn't really try, uh, but what he says is sweet. His mercy in nature is bright, in providence is conspicuous, but in his dear Son, his mercy in the incarnate God through that perfect sacrifice, this is mercy's best wine kept to the last. But he also wants us to note that it's the mercy of the Father, and he's emphasizing here the the affection, the, the compassion that the Father has for his Son. It's a distinct kind of mercy. Don't you rejoice, he asks, to think that you participate in abundant mercy, divine mercy, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, a Father's mercy, the mercy of our God and Father, with all the affection, the compassion, the patience that is bound up in that. Then the next great blessing, and again you get this sense of pace moving through, bearing in mind that Spurgeon very often will have two or three or four headings. These seven points require a a greater uh, momentum to press on through. And the next great blessing in the text then is that of an incorruptible life. Mark that, O believer. Again, Spurgeon's very good at addressing us directly when he speaks to us. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a lively hope. This incorruptible life is divine in its origin. God himself has begotten us. The new life does not come from man, but is wrought by the operation of the Holy Ghost. And the new life has not only then a divine origin, but also something of the divine nature. We are made partakers of the divine nature. We have in us the very life of God. God dwells in us. And again, you're thinking, there is so much in this text. And part of Spurgeon's skill here as a preacher is to give us enough to help us to see and to grasp and to feel something of this without getting bogged down in any one part. It's not that he doesn't have any appetite for plumbing the depths, but he's trying to give us this overview. And he wants us to understand the impact that it should have on us. And he nudges us in the right direction. To be begotten again is a very marvellous thing. He said, suppose a man born into this world had a predisposition to some sad hereditary disease and the medicine cannot eject the unwelcome tenant from his body. But what is happening now? Well, uh, suppose you could receive a, a new body pure from all taint. He says that's a scant reflection of what happens in regeneration. For regeneration overcomes not a mere material disease, not an infliction in the flesh, but the very depravity of the heart, the most deadly disorder of the soul. And we have then this 
new and incorruptible life. It can no longer be be damaged or destroyed. Then there's a third blessing, a lively hope, strictly connected with the new life. Could a man live without hope? Not well, says Spurgeon, but he has now a hope within him that is true and real and operative. It's a hope that enlivens, it purifies us, it excites us to diligence, it makes us seek after that which we expect to obtain. Furthermore, it cheers the soul. The swimmer, ready to sink if he sees a boat nearing him, plucks up courage and swims with all his strength. In the same way, hope keeps our heads above water. It's also called a living hope because it's imperishable. Other hopes fade like withering flowers. The hopes of the rich, the boasts of the proud, all these will die out as a candle when it flickers in the socket. The hope of the greatest monarch has been crushed before our eyes. He set up the standard of victory too soon and has seen it trailed in the mire. There is no unwaning hope beneath the changeful moon. The only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And then the hope that we have deals with life, and that's what makes it truly hopeful. This is our lively hope, that death has no no dominion over any part of our manhood. There is a while a separation between the soul and the body, but it's only for a while. There is for the flesh a temporary slumbering in the tomb. It is but a slumber, and the waking shall be in the likeness of Christ. Now again, have a, have a moment to look at the structure of this. You've got, first point, abundant mercy, the nature of the mercy, then that it's God's, it's God's in Christ, and it's God's mercy as a father. Then you've got the incorruptible life, divine in its origin and in its nature, and the marvel of being begotten again. Then you've got this lively hope that is real and true and operative, that cheers and enlivens, that is imperishable, that deals with life. You can track this structure uh, that Spurgeon is using. You can, again, visualize the headings on his notepaper. And he pushes us on once again, but showing us the importance of this this outline, this logical and structured uh, piece of thinking. We notice in the fourth place another delightful possession which ought effectually to chase away from all of us the glooms of this life, and that is a risen Saviour. He's begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our best friend is not dead, says Spurgeon. Our great patron and helper, our omnipotent Saviour, is not lying in the tomb today. He lives. He ever lives. No sound of greater gladness can be heard in the Christian church than this. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. And again, Spurgeon isn't doing these things in isolation. He wants us to observe the connection between a risen Saviour and our living hope. Because Christ is risen, therefore we have this lively hope. It's true for all believers. We are one with Jesus Christ, and we die in his death, and so we live in his life, and so we reign in his glory. As in Adam all die who were in Adam, So in Christ shall all be made alive who are in Christ. The two Adams head up their dispensations. Whatever happens to either of the Adams happens to those represented by him. So then, the resurrection of Jesus is virtually my resurrection. United to him, what happens to him must happen to me also. And if he lives, we also live. And this is the top and bottom of the Christian's hope. We are begotten again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As we see him alive, we rejoice that he lives because he lives for us 
and we live in him. And then he gives us an illustration and he's done a few nuggety little illustrations along the way. Here he uses Joseph in the land of Egypt and he says this is an emblem of what has happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to press on four of the seven precious things so far, the fifth exceedingly rich, but we can only give a word where many sermons would not exhaust, an incorruptible inheritance, that is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. And, and again, you sort of think, yes, you could, you could preach on this. Uh, so many, so many sermons, you could dive into its depths. And again, you've got this almost sub-sermon within the sermon, the substance, the purity, the beauty, the secure possession of this inheritance. For substance, incorruptible. Dynasties have been wrecked and thrones tottered by internal corruption, but the inheritance of the saints of God has nothing within it that can make it perish. Forever and forever shall the blissful portion of the sanctified be theirs. Then for purity, it's undefiled. There's uh, nothing that is vile in it, nothing that pollutes the heritage. It comes to us purely and cleanly and it belongs to us without any kind of uh, traducing or undermining. Then it's beautiful. It does not fade away. The substance of a thing might endure after its beauty is gone, but in heaven there's no declining in the beauty of anything celestial. And then it's secure in its possession. It's reserved in heaven for you. How I delight to dwell upon the thought that heaven is not to be scrambled for, he says, that the portion of each saint in glory is given to him by lot, even as was Canaan of old to Judah, to Reuben, to Manasseh and the like. It's ours by God's appointment. Oh, clap your hands, you righteous, shout for joy. Scanty is your portion here, and hard your lot it may be, but the undefiled inheritance will more than make amends. Therefore, lift up your hearts this day, and let not your hands hang down. And again, if you're starting out as a preacher and you think, I just need something sweet and simple and straightforward, here it is, the incorruptible inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. Its substance, incorruptible. Its purity, undefiled. Its beauty, it does not fade. Its possession, secure, reserved in heaven for you. Your introduction, the saints have an inheritance. We are uh, granted that we shall be heirs of God himself. Your, your conclusion, then this is a matter for joy, this is a matter for hope, this is a matter for faith, this is a matter for service. You, you could really break out any of these things where Spurgeon has divided them up into a brief but, but hopefully helpful and potent sermon. But like him, time fails us, he says. Therefore, we must mention the sixth blessing at once, which is inviolable security. And again, he's already picked this up, hasn't he? The possession is secure. The inheritance is kept. And you for the inheritance. It's a military image signifying a city garrisoned and defended. The enemy are about us, but the city is preserved. The believer is kept by the same power which bears the earth's huge pillars up and sustains the very arches of heaven. Jerusalem, you are besieged, but you may laugh your enemy to scorn, for he shall never break through your ramparts. The enemies assemble, but God is known in our palaces for a refuge, and so the enemies are troubled and shall hasten away. And again, just sort of one pressing point here, that this keeping is complete and continuous. And Spurgeon says, I've got to leave the point. So again, I'm wondering, 
How much does he have down on the paper? But here's the preacher in the very act of preaching. He's managing his material. He's aware of the passage of time. He's looking into the faces of men and women. He's gauging how much of their attention he has, working out if he needs to, to, to press forward or if he can hold on. Does he need another illustration? Uh, can he afford to develop this point as much? No, he's just going to give us the main thrust. The keeping is complete and continuous. It will never end until we shall need keeping no longer. That means not only shall we be kept in our souls reach heaven, but we shall be kept until the advent itself. You say, how is that necessary? I reply, only half of our manhood goes to heaven at death. The other part, our body, waits below until the resurrection. Spurgeon's uh, understanding here of what happens in our death is is very clear. There are times when I think he he sort of emphasizes the happiness of the souls in being immediately in the presence of Christ, which is perfectly true, but you can easily forget the body. Here he's making sure we understand, yes, the body is secure because Christ has his hand upon it and it will come forth and the body and the soul will be reunited. So at the Lord's appearing, you shall be none the worse for the fall of Adam. You shall be none the worse for your own transgressions. You shall be none the worse for all the scars of battle. You shall be none the worse for dying. You shall be in heaven as bright as God himself could have made you if you'd never fallen and never sinned. Exaggeration? No. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall wake up in his likeness. And here's the, the outburst of praise again, that, that cry of the heart. Oh, the glory of complete victory over Satan's arts and Satan's strength. He shall be defeated all along the line. He shall gain nothing by all his attacks upon our God and upon us. But we in the image of Jesus shall laugh at the complete defeat of evil and glorify God and the Lamb forever. Now, here's the last of these seven points. And Spurgeon does something interesting here. The best, he says, I've reserved for the last. Out of the seven treasures of the Christian, the last comprehends all, is better than all, though what I have already spoken be everything, it is a blessed God. Now, the reason why I say this is particularly interesting is because Spurgeon has so far done what he occasionally, even often does, and that is to break up his text and to run through its words and phrases so that uh, not that you get a running exposition on a text, but that you do get the text broken down and explained and applied. Now, that sometimes works. Sometimes you need to, uh, for the sake of the sermonic structure, take account of uh, of how those phrases or words fit together. What Spurgeon has done here is to put the first last. So you think of how the verse or the verses actually begin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And again, just rereading it, you think, yep, there's so much more in there than even Spurgeon has begun to, to nibble away at. But you notice now what he does. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's a joy to have heaven. It's a joy to possess a new life that fits me for heaven. But the greatest of all is to have my God, my own Saviour's God, my Father, my own Saviour's Father, to be all my own. And so it's this blessed God, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have him. It's that covenant promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God has not given us earth and heaven only, though that were much, but has given you the very heaven of heaven himself. And so as we think about the fact that God is ours and we are God's, the practical point then is to show your gratitude and your joy by blessing God. So those previous six headings, those six blessings, are really just all winding up into this a crowning declaration that you have God in these things, and you have these things because you have God. And so the practical point is to show your gratitude and your joy by blessing God. And that's a wonderful application. So many of our applications, and often rightly, are do this, think like this, act like this. But Spurgeon's is also here, feel this and act upon this by blessing the Lord. And this is as much a legitimate application as any of the other doings that we might do. You can bless him with your voices, he says. Sing more than you do. At your work, quietly raise a hymn and bless the Lord. But keep the fire on the altar of your hearts always burning. Praise him. Bless him. His mercy endures forever. So let your praises endure. Bless him also with your substance. You've got your voices. You've got your substance. Don't give him mere words. They're only air and tongues are clay. Give him the best that you have. Give him your, 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 your wealth such as you have it. And be generous at all times, counting it your joy to be sacrificing unto God. And then give him your efforts and your time and your talents. You see, again, having received so much, how do we respond? By giving everything that we have back to God and saying, here we are, take us, use us. Bless the Lord this afternoon in the Sunday school. Teach the dear children under a sense of your own obligations to God. You go from house to house this afternoon. It's a beautiful image, incidentally, isn't it? That the church worshipping in the morning and then working on the Sabbath afternoon, taking the gospel out, teaching the Sunday school children, going door to door, preaching in the streets, lifting up your voices in the corners of the thoroughfares. I sometimes think that our ideas of the the day of rest, especially those of us who, like Spurgeon, are persuaded Sabbatarians, is that Sunday's a day for doing as little as possible. Actually, it's a day for serving the Lord God, and in that we find our rest and our refreshment. Preacher, live more intensely and ardently than you ever have done. Deacons, serve the church more thoroughly than you've done as yet. Elders, give your whole souls to the care of Christ's flock, which he has redeemed with his blood. Each one of you workers for Jesus Christ, work not for him after an ordinary sort, as men do for a master whose pay is no larger than he can be compelled to make it, but work with heart and soul and strength for him who loved you to the death and poured out his soul to redeem you from going down into hell. And so the sermon reaches its conclusion. Thus prove that the divine nature is truly in you and that you possess the lively hope implanted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's therefore this this delight that Spurgeon takes, not just in salvation, but in the God of salvation that, that really should impress itself upon us. How often do we preach in this spirit and with this intent to bring people to the point of, of a simple, joyful, overwhelming sense of of the goodness of God in Christ toward us that that then does call forth all that we are and all that we have. 
It's our privilege to be blessed by the blessed God, the most merciful and the most gracious. And really, we should be asking, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I hope that's where this sermon leaves you. And I hope, therefore, you'll join us again next week to learn more from this man called by many the Prince of Preachers. I think he'd have shuddered at having that title applied to himself, but how much we appreciate the gifts that he has for the exalting of God in Christ and the reveling in the mercies that God has provided. So do like this podcast if you're able to. Uh, Do give us a review if you're able to leave one. Do give us some feedback at Media Gratii. They're the very generous producers of this podcast, and you can find them at mediagratii.org, where you'll see a a range of other podcasts or uh, productions that might be useful to you. Uh, I've got some word-in-season devotions, five minutes every day of the year. Uh, John Snyder has the whole council podcast. There's other material there that you might be interested in. And if you go to the slash podcasts at mediagratii.org, you can find as well a link for a newsletter where you'll get the, the weekly readings sent out to you with a link to the featured sermon. You can also follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon for some daily uh, quotes and uh, and bits and pieces. We hope that you'll You'll appreciate those if you go there. But most of all, we trust that by doing this for you, we're able not so much to exalt Spurgeon. He would have been mortified to think that that were our aim, but rather to exalt Christ, to to learn more of him and what it means to preach him as it comes to us from the heart of a man who is taken up with Christ. May we all be more like that ourselves and may that be the 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 means that God uses in us for the blessing of those who are around us. Until next time, may the Lord have mercy upon us and make his face to shine upon us and show us more of this string of pearls in the salvation he's bestowed upon us in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ.